Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And as we've discussed before, we are already cyborgs. We already depend on Bluetooth gadgets that are attached to our ears, mm-hmm. hearing aids, dental apparatuses of different types, things to improve our eyesight, things to help the beating of our heart, all sorts of gadgets that work to improve the human body. The term cyborg itself dates back to around 1960. We discussed this in the Werewolf Principle episode that we did about cyborgs in space. But these uh, two authors, Manfred E. Kleins and Nathan S. Klein, they published this report called Cyborgs and Space, in which they discussed how cybernetic enhancements would enable us to better explore the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And that uh, included th- this wonderful line where they say, in the past, evolution brought about the altering of bodily functions to suit different environments. Starting as of now, it will be possible to achieve this to some degree without alteration of heredity by suitable biochemical, physiological, and electronic modifications of man's existing way of life. And so we see that all around us, and we see that more and more as we move into the future. And In this episode, we are going to talk mainly about contact lenses, these contact lenses of the gods. Um, (laughs) That's what they're marketing them. Well, they are. My words, not theirs, but. Contact lenses of the future, future. (laughs) But the idea that you can put a contact lens in your eyeball and that that contact lens would be able to give you, for for lack of better language, a, a terminator view of the world. I mean, that's the. That's the example that gets thrown around in a lot of the articles about this. And obviously, the terminator visual. POV shot has become a staple of comedy. Like Homer Simpson has used the Terminator POV where the lights are identifying various objects in the room and, and informing the mind about what's going on in the world around one. We see that already to a certain extent with this idea of the Google goggles. Right, sort of a Terminator light. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is a technology that should be with us uh, by the end of 2012 by estimates. Yeah, then they're augmented reality glasses. And the idea here is that you would project a layer of information over the physical objects that you're seeing. And this would be hooked up like to Bluetooth, your smartphone. So let's say I'm at the library. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's a bad example because we're in the future. Let's say I am... Uh, in the virtual library. Let's say I'm at a buffet, some sort of futuristic buffet. Mm-hmm. And I look down and I'm like, whoa, what is that? It looks kind of like meatballs, but... This is a vegetarian dish. What could it possibly be? So what do I do? I look down at it, and then I tick my head to one side, kind of like a nervous tick, and then that causes the goggles to zone in on it, search for it online, and then give me the information in my field of sight uh, yeah. laid over the actual strange meatball dish. And then it will right. tell me, oh, these aren't meatballs at all. It's succotash soy nuggets that are mined on the... On, on our vast colonies on Mars and then brought back to Earth. Uh, you know, I, I, Yeah, the lenses are serving as a kind of see-through computer monitor. Yeah. What I keep thinking about, and this was actually brought up in an article, I don't know if it was Wired, I can't recall it right offhand, but they were talking about early adopters of Bluetooth and how insane they looked when they, yes. when they began to use those because you could never tell if the person was talking to you because mm-hmm. they were talking like total non-sequitur trash, at least that's what it sounded like, or if they were insane, obviously as this technology became more widespread, it became less insane-looking 
happening, but people say the same thing is going to happen with these Google goggles because people are going to be, uh, you know, of course they'll be able to see the reality in front of them, but they're also going to be negotiating virtual spaces right. and virtual objects and making some crazy gesticulations. So there was a time when someone wa- talking to themselves as they walked down the street, your first thought is, whoa, that person's crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you would realize, oh, wait, they have one of those new devices that allows them to talk hands-free. Now it's it's the reverse. You see somebody talking to themselves going down the street. You're like, oh, that person just has a Bluetooth. And then you might see that they don't have one. You'd be like, oh, wait, my bad. That person's crazy. Currently, the individual talking to an imaginary person or thing, Mm -hmm. first impulse, something wrong with this person. This person is having an episode of some kind. They're talking to an imaginary friend. But we may reach the point, oh, we're going to reach the point where your first thought is, oh, that person's having a virtual conference call while waiting on the train. No biggie. Yeah, and actually, here's the article. It's from the New York Times, and it's behind the Google Glasses virtual reality. They're saying a person looking at a landmark could see detailed historical information with Mm -hmm. these lenses and comments about it left by friends. If facial recognition software becomes accurate enough, the glasses could remind a wearer of when and how he met the vaguely familiar person standing in front of him at a party. Super creepy. And it might also be used for virtual reality games that use the real world as the playground. Again, this is where you're going to see the crazy gesticulations. Um, the glasses are going to use the same Android software that powers Android smartphones and tablets. And like smartphones and tablets, the glasses will be equipped with GPS and motion sensors, and they'll contain a camera and audio inputs and outputs. And then one of these articles mentioned the possibility that you would have advertisers placing virtual advertisements in your field of sight over Mm -hmm. actual advertisements for rival products. Yeah, there's all sorts of issues here. The ethics of privacy issues, right? Especially with Mm -hmm. the facial recognition software. Or the the idea that you could put someone else's face over like a loved one's face or a a co-worker's face. The Daily Show did an interesting send-up of this where they pretended that someone had goslinged Jon Stewart so that it was Jon Stewart talking, but he looked like Ryan Gosling. Ah, okay. All right. So all this stuff's on the table because you're tinkering with the way that we perceive physical reality. Well, you also have this idea of you're in a public space and you're bringing private content into it. So even though you may be the only person who is looking at it, it would be disconcerting, certainly, if the person next to you were watching porn, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Particularly, it was a virtual situation and they were making crazy gestures. Or if you had it set up to where it was linked with Facebook so that any new person you met it would instantly tell you what their favorite movie is. Well, and this that reveals okay. character. But and that always points back to the book Super Sad True Love Story. Ah. And the premise of that is that at some point in the future you have this gadget around your neck and you walk into a bar and you get your hotness rating. Right, the whole room rates you. You see this. Your oh, credits. Wow. So your, it's crowdsourced and then yes. visible through a. Um, are, they, all, are they wearing goggles or is it? No, no. It's a, uh, they all are looking at their own little gadgets and they're like, oh, so and so just came in the room. Their hotness rating, their credit score, whether or not they're in a relationship. Right. So you've got like the Facebook status and, and stuff like that. That makes me think that's what we're sort of moving toward here. And let me just make a note too about these goggles. They're called goggles, but the, some of the photos that I've seen, these mock-ups, they they are pretty subtle. Actually, I mean, we're talking about a very small display screen within these glasses, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be immediately apparent. Like, oh, those are those Google goggles, you yeah. know? Like, that's that person's not nuts. So there's a subtlety here, and I was actually thinking about Google. Like, what's going on there? Are they sitting around going, okay, we've we've created this Google driverless car, 
Mm-hmm. And now people aren't necessarily going to need to, to use their eyesight to make all these important decisions. They're going to be offline here. Let's create this cool gadget. So then in the car, they're constantly plugged in. Or are they thinking, you know, with our search engine and with uh, so much of the Internet, we've made it where people don't have to remember facts. They don't have to know how to spell. What greater harm could we do to the human brain in the way that we live our lives other than to put these goggles on someone's face and just stream necessary data as it is needed right into their field of vision. They don't even have to think, oh, I better Google that. They're Googling it and then forgetting it as soon as it's off the screen. Well, and there, you know, didn't it come out not too long ago about how Google and search engines have really changed the way that we recall information? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, for, for better or worse, like we're being shaped by this technology. There are also endlessly interesting artistic ways that this could be used. William Gibson, the uh, sci-fi author and and futurist, went into a lot of these in his book, Spook Country. Uh, that came out a few years back. Unlike his uh, older works, though, Spook Country is more based in the real world and what is possible very near future. So a lot of the plot in that book revolves around the use of these augmented reality goggles and what they can reveal about the world and also how they can be used to create unique art installations where you have a certain certain part of it may be physical, like there could be a physical location, and then you could have some sort of artistic display put over that. So in the same way that in our real world you have a graffiti artist may paint over an ugly building and create some fantastic work of art, mm-hmm. you could have the digital version of that in wearing these goggles. So you could just flip a switch and you could say, like, I don't want to see ruined buildings. Please replace those with something gorgeous. There's some amazing possibilities here, both artistic and just pragmatic, too. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that even just in the sense of forget GPS in your car or just walking around and looking at your smartphone and trying to figure out where you are. If you have these glasses on, you can immediately figure out a route much easier using this sort of technology. So the possibilities are, are pretty great. Uh, but again, there are some privacy issues, and the advertising thing is a little bit creepy. But we're still talking about glasses. We're still talking yeah. about something I need to actually put on my face that can get knocked off, that can get smudged. There's got to be a better way. I know. Let's make contacts of the future. Future, yes. future. <laughs> you know, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's really get into this idea because it's, it's fascinating. We're already leapfrogging ahead. We don't even all have Google goggles yet. But, but they're, they're so yesterday. But they're already so, yeah, so yesterday for some researchers, some engineers and bioengineers are hard at work on some really amazing ways uh, of seeing the world augmented through a mere contact lens. So let's take that break, and when we come back, we'll discuss it. All right, we're back. So before we get into the science of how this is developing, let's discuss the advantages like why, to, why would you want a contact in your eye that is transmitting information and uh, overlaying yeah, like it's, it's things a cool, on your visual field? It's a cool idea. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of cool ideas out there. But why is this one actually worth investing in? Like what's the value proposition for crazy futurist contact lenses? There are a few different ones. For instance, there is the argument that these could depend on less energy for various displays. So you have an LCD computer screen. And it's kind of wasteful. It sends out a lot of photons, but only a small fraction of them enter your eye and hit the retina to form an image. Mm -hmm. But when the display is directly over your cornea, every photon generated by the display helps form the image. That concept was brought up by Bavik Pravis of the University of Washington in Seattle, who leads a U.S. and Finnish lab that is developing this technology. Another big possibility is that, okay, so contact lenses... They can be knocked out. They can slide out of your eye. But they're right. they're generally a little more solid than a pair of glasses. 
and they are in contact with your body. They're in contact with your tears, with the wetness of your eye. And on the surface of your eye, there are a number of different properties that are testable to mm-hmm. determine what's going on inside of your body, such as some, some of the same biomarkers that are found in your blood. If we could create a, a contact lens that... They not only maybe display some information, but then also can read the contents of that liquid on the surface of our eye. Right. Then we'd have some valuable medical insight. And then if you were able to transmit that to some sort of a smart device, mm-hmm. you could have medics show up on a scene to attend to somebody who's had an accident, and they could just do a quick link up with your contact lens and tell what some of the basic properties going on in your body are. Again, I mean, this really leaves so many other technologies in the dirt that we've talked about. We've talked about the cell phone that can do the same thing and basically mm-hmm. take these biomarkers and uh, try to give you a baseline of your current health, right, and send that information to your doctor. Same thing with the toilets of the future, right? Yeah. That basically takes a stool sample or a urine sample and looks at them critically and then sends that to your doctor. Yeah. So the same thing could be happening because of that viscosity in your eye and in the contact has to have that, right? That can begin to monitor your health, and that is very exciting. Yeah, things like cholesterol, sodium, potassium levels, just to, just to name a few. And then, of course, we could also we can also go with the crazier aspects of using them like the Google goggles, that they're changing the way we view the world, that they are changing the way that we interact with it. There's even an idea that you'll have contact lenses which focus 3D screens directly into people's eyeballs. This is an idea that Innovega TV Entertainment Technology Company has put forward. They've even said that we'll have this by 2014. I tend to doubt it. With the 3D component? Yeah, I don't know. Just 2014 sounds kind of soon. Maybe somebody will have it, but I don't see There is an idea that a more refined version Mm -hmm. of this prototype will be available in 10 years. And and we'll talk about why it needs to be refined, because right now, these are high-flying ideas. But when the rubber meets the road, the fact of the matter is is that we got a clunky pair of contacts before us right now. Right. So let's look at an experiment that has been conducted by Babic Pravis and the University of Washington, Seattle, Babic that we mentioned earlier. So they have actually constructed a contact lens, and it, it is embedded with a tiny LED mm-hmm. that can light up when a signal is sent to it. They've actually made this mm-hmm. in small, not like a large-scale model of it, but an actual contact lens that they can communicate with with that signal. They took a tiny custom-designed LED made with blue sapphire and embedded it in the center of a plastic contact lens. Then they added a circular antenna that's placed around the inside lip of the lens, and a miniature integrated circuit connects the antenna and the LED. So then they can use a remote radio frequency transmission that can actually control that single pixel. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking like a crazy complicated display. We're talking a single pixel that can light up. And they didn't test, it's not tested on humans, they tested it on live sedated rabbits. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they found that there was no apparent health concern here, it didn't scar up the, the rabbit's eyes. Yeah, there was no abrasions. Mm-hmm. As far as I could tell, it seemed like it was working pretty well. Again, though, this is not a comfortable contact. Right, this, this is a, is lot a hard contact, and they sedated the rabbit right. for, for the experiment. Yeah, it's a hard plastic PET limits airflow to the eye, so you would only be able to wear this for a few minutes at a time. This is an an early prototype. Also, in terms of communicating with it, the contact lens could, they found that they could power it from about three feet away when outside of the eye, but that distance narrowed to about an inch when the contact was in the actual Mm -hmm. eye. So very early goings with this. And then what does the rabbit see, right? That's a big question here. They say that the single pixel lighting up would appear more or less like a blur. It wouldn't be very well defined. See, a normal, healthy eye cannot focus on objects that are fewer than 10 centimeters from the corneal surface. So on one hand, a blur might be useful. Like a colorful blur 
could be used conceivably as just a warning sign, like, oh, your cholesterol level's too high. Or, or you're, if you're hearing impaired. Yeah. Somebody's talking to you, yeah. you get a red flash. Okay. But it would be nice to have something a little more concrete. Mm-hmm. So you need a way to push the image away from the cornea. And according to Harvis, one possible solution is to employ an array of even smaller lenses placed at the surface of the contact lenses. These are micro lenses. So these micro lenses would be placed between the eye and the pixels, spacing the pixel in a micro lens about 360 micrometers apart. And he says that would be enough to push back the virtual image so that to the wearer, the image would seem to hang in space about a half a meter away. Yeah, so I mean, the amazing, the, the amazing thing about this is that they have put antennas, radio chips, control circuitry, and micrometer scale light sources, you know, all integrated this into a contact lens mm-hmm. and fitted it onto to the rabbit's eyes and, you know, without destroying the rabbit's vision. I mean, this in and of itself is amazing. Now it's just a game of scales, right? Trying to, mm-hmm. to miniaturize this and make it comfortable and make it much more complex and nuanced. And we're using active lenses right now in these early experiments, but the idea is in the future we could also depend on passive lenses. And this a passive lens is where the light is coming from the lens on your pupil rather than from an external source. So you need much less power to actually power it. Yeah. But some of these designs, uh, I was looking at some of these schematics showing what some of these contact lenses might look like, and there are a number of different components that they're going to try and, and implement. You would have like a solar cell module, electrical interconnections, biosensor module, sensor readout and control circuit, energy storage module, semi-transparent displays and micro lens array, telecommunications and power reception antenna, display control circuit, and a radio and power conversion circuit, all of that on the space of a single contact lens. And the fact that we're even talking about that yeah. is just mind-blowing. Well, and then, again, you get back to the ethics here. You wonder, is there going to be some way that, assuming that these become as unobtrusive as regular contacts, right? Mm-hmm. In, in other words, if I were looking at you, I wouldn't be able to tell you how them in. From an ethics standpoint, will they make companies brand them or somehow change You'll have a watermark in your vision. I know, so I'm thinking like a GE watermark on the pupil. That's for the cheap version, and then you have to pay. It's like with the Kindle, right, with the advertising. Exactly, exactly. That's probably, I'm sure there are different If you want advertisements on everything in your life, you can get the cheaper version. Right, If you want to pay out to remove the ads, that's a different ballgame. I mean, these are all questions, right? Yeah. And then there's the question of, do you identify people in some way to say that I, I have augmented reality going on, or does that even matter? Yeah. Would you only want to associate with people with augmented? Or, I mean, it becomes like a, a star-bellied kind of like situation. Total Dr. Seuss. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I was, again, going back to Ian Pearson, the futurist who mm-hmm. talked about the travel lodge. And that was one of his ideas, this active contact lenses, that they could deliver high-quality 3D images directly onto the retina and that you could beam some sort of image in place of your lover. And that person would never know. But then other mu- more mundane uses are possible, like you wouldn't need notes for anything. You'd have them right there. Teleprompters would be a thing of the past. you have them right there in your contact lenses. If you're a police officer, a soldier, special forces especially, you could have uh, vital information about what you're doing appearing right there on your eyesight Terminator style, so you're not having to look down at a laptop or a collection of notes. But does this impair our ability to think critically? You yeah, know? that's the big question. Does it turn us into cybernetic zombies where we don't know how to spell anything? We don't know how to how to remember anything because we don't have to because anytime we need something, uh, we can just depend on our smartphone apparatus and our virtual overlay that comes to us through the contact lenses to tell us everything we need to know. And at what point do we become this weakening, atrophied part of the technology? 
Well, and a tool of companies, right? Because, right. I mean, already our brains are bifurcated by the messages beamed at us from various devices. I mean, what if you're sitting there and you're really trying to get something done and mm-hmm. you see, you know, something scroll across for 20% off Bed Bath & Beyond, 600 count sateen sheets, and you begin to act on these sorts of commercials or advertisements that are being beamed at you. And then I also think, too, back to a bunch of studies that always say that our stress levels and our ability to recall information is affected by our environments. And so that's why they have all these different studies that say if you go and take a a walk in nature, your stress levels drop, your short-term memory increases by like 20%, just this one simple act. And a lot of that is because your brain isn't being occupied by different sorts of decisions it has to make or monitoring that has to to do, you know, in an urban landscape. Oh, that's great because these will will make it look like nature's all over me, right? Okay, okay. Yeah, so all right. So I guess you could create a virtual nature around yourself via these contacts. Yeah, it's just nothing but moss and trees and then, of course, advertisements. Yeah, I was going to say, and logos, company yeah. logos all over. You look closely at the flower and you see the uh, the company logo right there in the middle of it. Well, that's so, a little dystopian, but there you go. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's, it's fascinating technology. It is happening. We're going to have it at some point, whether it's going to be the kind of thing that everybody's actually using and everyone's actually wearing or if it's a very specialized thing or if it's just a kind of stepping stone to other forms of technology. And the eroding of the self. Yeah, well, that's going to happen either way. We can't help but erode the old self. All right, let's put that bit of futurism aside, and let's turn to the robot and his listener mail. Here's one that we received from listener Alice. Alice writes in, she's uh, responding to the Sloth podcast. She says, hey, guys, I am another avid listener to the podcast, and generally I enjoy the side commentary that you both have to offer. However, in the Sloth podcast, Robert made a joke about using attractive women in space to make it seem as though the trip were progressing faster. This is an extremely problematic thing to say on several levels, joke or not. For one, as Julie pointed out, it would be nothing more than flat-out objectification of women, which is already a highly problematic issue. Another issue is that this statement furthers the idea that all astronauts are male. Sure, women could enjoy looking at dolled-up ladies at the front of the cabin, but I don't think that was the intent. I understand that this was intended as a joke, but nothing that is spoken or written exists in a vacuum, and things of this nature continue to marginalize women. For a better description of what is sometimes called magical intent, a good article uh, to read is Melissa McEwen's Harmful Communications Part 1, Intent is Magic. With all this said, I believe that jokes like that do not belong in a podcast, you know? Thanks for your consideration, Alice. Well, I certainly did not mean to objectify women. And I was referring to a quote from Albert Einstein where he was talking about the nature of relativity. I love the idea of taking examples like that that are very very much a, a thought experiment and extrapolating that to some sort of real world or, well, sci-fi application. The idea that we could use that to somehow manipulate our experience of space travel is ridiculous. But at the same time, I I do have to agree that the possibility of depending on the sexual objectification of men, women, or what have you for such a venture would be rather troublesome. And it kind of reminds me of the idea that we might, using the powder of sympathy, might use tortured dogs to determine longitude on transoceanic voyages, a possibility brought up in Umberto Echo's The Island of the Day Before. So I agree. I think Alice had valid criticism there. So if you felt objectified and found my comments offensive, I apologize. All right. Well, cool. What else, uh, what else <laughs> does Ernie have in there? Uh, let's see. Oh, yes. Here's a nice one. This is from listener Russ. 
Russ writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. You guys have a great podcast. I wanted to write you regarding the last one. Well, the last one I listened to regarding the Northern Lights. Robert, you commented that you remembered your family taking you to see the Northern Lights, but you don't remember seeing them. Have no fear. This is actually quite common. Many times the Northern Lights are actually showing, but you only see a small sliver of light lights themselves with the naked eye, depending on solar activity. But it's only with a camera that you can see much more spectacular pictures of the dancing lights. This is mainly because most people have their cameras on a tripod and set up to allow 30 seconds or so for their shutter speed. The increased amount of light allowed to the camera augments the spectacular nature of the lights uh, that you have just seen when you show the pictures to your friends. But sadly, it is sometimes not what your eye has just seen in real life. I recently saw the lights on a trip to Iceland and have attached a few photos. It was an amazing thing for me to see regardless, however. A friend of mine who went there was not impressed due to the fact that he was expecting to see the magnificence that was typically seen in most photos and time-lapse videos with just his naked eyes. I attached a few photos to show you what the camera showed me after a 30-second exposure in Iceland. Also, I was quite lucky on the day that I was there to also see Venus and Jupiter, the two bright star-like objects just to the left of the lights themselves, along with the photos. Anyway, you guys have a wonderful podcast, and I particularly have enjoyed the Seven Deadly Sins episodes. The Divine Comedy is definitely next on my list of books to read now. Best regards, Russ. Well, first of all, as I've said before, if you are going to read the Divine Comedy, shop around and make sure you get a, a version that has nice notes and, and right illustrations. One. Because if you just get the straight-up Divine Comedy, especially if you get it in Italian, if you, if you don't read Italian, but even if you just have a translated version... There's a lot of stuff there that needs illuminating to the modern reader. But with appropriate notes and all, it's, it's fabulous. Off the top of your head, do you remember the, the version? I know you've talked about it before. but Robert M. Derling. Okay. Uh, get, the, get the version with Robert M. Derling on it. Now, I only have his Inferno and Purgatory. I'm not sure if they have Paradise out yet. I ended up having to depend on a different version for Paradise. And at the time... Even though I found Paradise less interesting than the mm-hmm. previous two, because you've, you've cleared out all the sin by Paradise. You're not going to have devils playing trumpets with their butts or anything up there, which which happens in Inferno, by the way. And that's why the translation and commentary is so exactly. important, right? That's because you don't want to get you don't want to you know glaze past trumpet. Yeah, but so year, years ago they had not uh, Martinez and uh, Derling had not yet put out their Paradise edition. But that may be out now. I haven't checked. Yeah. But secondly, most importantly, to respond to the meat of your email, Russ, fascinating information there about how we perceive the Northern Lights and what people were actually seeing in those photos and videos. And the photos you sent were amazing. I would urge Russ, and I would urge anyone else out there who has some really cool imagery they've taken, you know, photos from trips, photos from just your daily life where you see something just crazy and kind of mind-blowing, take those and enter them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind photo contest. You can find a link for this on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage, on the HowStuffWorks Facebook account, on our Facebook account, and we'll be throwing out links on Twitter as well. Go there. You can upload your image in, I believe there are six different categories, including things like gross and and amazing and and scary. Yeah, and you should do this not just because it's it would be super cool for us to get a look at what you guys think is mind-blowing, but also... There's an iPad involved. Here. Yeah, yeah. The, or the possibility. There's that a you possibility can win one. to win an iPad. So, so upload the stuff, and you get to vote on other, on everybody else's stuff, and, and choose whether it blew your mind or bored your mind. So, there's going to be a lot of user voting to determine what is the best image. So, Russ, get those images up online. Everyone else, start uploading, and uh, I look forward to checking out the results. 
So if you have anything you would like to share with us, if you have any ideas about the future of crazy futuristic contact lenses, share them with us on Facebook where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And you can find us on Twitter as Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Thank you.